0: All right, all right, church, let's turn to the book of Genesis chapter 1, the first two verses in chapter 2, the first three verses, we are answering the question, why Sabbath? So let's give our full attention to this. This is how actually the Bible begins, verses 1 and 2 of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3, read, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, and on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is God's word, thanks be to God. We, as human beings, uh, we make cars. We invented that. But cars break down, they don't last too long, they do not operate optimally if we don't take care of our cars. And if we have no regard for the owner's manual. Uh, If you didn't know by now, God made you, God made me. We are human creatures. God is our creator. And there happens to be a manual, an owner's manual. I've just got two parts from the opening majestic verses of the Holy Bible. Two parts. God created human beings. For work and for Sabbath rest, that's part one, and then second, we're going to try to answer, how do we experience and enter into that Sabbath rest? First, we're created for work, created to work and for Sabbath rest, and then second, how do we experience that Sabbath rest? Well, first, God actually made us for work, for work. Genesis 1, if you read the following verses, it's kind of parceled into six days, and God created everything that was made, and at the pinnacle, at the top of all of creation, is not only man and woman, but the one who reigns supreme, the one who is sovereign over all is God himself. Genesis 1 and 2, its major purpose is to convey the sovereignty and the supremacy of God as our creator. It's not intended or even pretends to be a science textbook. It's not even meant to tell you literally or sequentially how creation was made. It has a theme. It has a theological purpose. And it's namely that God is sovereign and supreme over all. And yet, God, who is sovereign and supreme, got down to work. So to speak, he rolled up his sleeves and his hands actually got into the dirt, into the dust, to make his prized crown jewel of all creation, man and woman, his hands got into the dirt, into the dirt. What does this mean? That means no work is menial. That means there's no work that is not worthwhile. Work has a dignity actually equal to God. You work and you were created to work like God. It's actually a godly thing, not a bad thing. Man's first assignment, according to chapter 2, verse 5, was to, quote, work the ground. Work the ground. So there's this horrible notion from ancient Greek times, to medieval ages, and even into our modern times. Where somehow we think certain jobs and professions which are maybe white collar work or higher income work, it's imaginative, maybe it's music, maybe it's philosophers, maybe it's thinkers, somehow we inherently think, we buy into this notion that that is superior elevated against like physical, in the dirt, like back-breaking hard work. This is nowhere in the scriptures. Never. Never ever, God himself, who is utterly supreme and superlative, put his hands in the dirt to make the best of all of his creation. I want you to think of, or please tell me after this message, name another religion that talks like this. Name any other religion that says, all work, God given, has inherent dignity because it's godly you work like god our creator we were created for work this morning at our 9 a.m worship service where our teachers and our children's ministry volunteers get to hear the word of god and at least sing some songs eric cho our children's ministry director i asked him how are you doing how's ccsc going without any hesitation he says Harold, it's hard work, but it's good work. I have so much to grow here at the church, but that's why I enjoy it. That's a good one. (laughs) Eric's a really, really great, great addition to our staff. He loves and enjoys hard, good, worthwhile work because that's like God. A second thing we're created for, please don't stop here. We are created for enjoyment. You and I are created to actually enjoy all things, all of creation and all of our work. After each day in Genesis chapter 1, there is this phrase that is repeated, and God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. 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 On the sixth day, it says, and God saw that it was very good, very good. What does this mean? What does that mean? That God saw and took in an appreciation of this is good. That things were in proper order. That creation was at peace, organized, before the fall, no pollution and ruin had come. So it was at optimal stage. It was functioning, top-notch form. Was that what God intended to say when he said God saw that it was good? No. I actually think, and many commentators and many Hebrew scholars will tell you, that God saw that it was good actually means God is taking in pleasure. God is exhilarated. God is... Not superficially, but fully happy and satisfied. There is a notion of ecstasy here, not just slight happiness. God created all things to enjoy. At junior high, high school, even through halfway through college, no one could pay me to listen to classical music. Found it boring, didn't register to my brain waves, did not move me. Last decade, I will gladly pay to go listen to classical music. When I took out Sunny on one of our first dates, I wanted to impress her to a live classical music concert in Washington, D.C. She fell asleep, she snored out loud throughout the whole concert but I was just beginning to appreciate how good this music is for my soul. God created you and me, and God created all things for... What? Now listen close, my friends. How you answer this question affects everything. It really does. What you think of God as to what was his ultimate purpose for creating all things, will color and affect everything you do. God was not lonely. God was not lacking. God was not codependent. God was not on some random whim. God wasn't just like border restless someday. God was not deficient. God was not needy. I want you to just think about that. Think of another person who's like that. There's no one. Only creator God could be like this. God absolutely self-sufficient, completely content because he's a triune God. He already had company and fellowship and perfect glory and peace. Why would he create anything? Why would he make anything? Well, if God was not needy, there is no other ultimate purpose for which God created everything than for his own creation to share in his own enjoyment. You see, if God was not needy, he didn't need to gain anything from you. God didn't have to prove anything to you. If God created all things and he did not need anything in and of himself, why would he create all things? Here's why. God created you and me and all things throughout all of the cosmos so that you and I get to share in and participate in his own enjoyment and pleasure taking over all of creation. This is radical. This is revelatory. God created all human beings not only to work, but for enjoyment. Enjoyment, aesthetics, beauty, pleasure. Did you know this is your number one job? Especially if you are a Christian. Your number one job in all of life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Did you know that a Christian's number one job is to worship and glorify God and or John Piper would say by Listening, observing, taking in, savoring, tasting, experiencing, attributing, assigning, worshiping and glorifying God for what? Enjoyment of all of creation. I was telling D-Pen, our Fullerton campus pastor who came straight from the East Coast, I said, I don't remember California looking like this, like ever. I had to drive into Los Angeles twice this week and you see that crystal clear, clean picture of those snow-capped mountains to the northeast? Stunning. Can't look at it too long or else you're getting in a car accident. But do you remember Los Angeles ever looking like this? That's glorious. I read an article from Desiring God Ministries a couple weeks ago. The question was posed, do you know why porn shops and adult stores have all their windows closed or blinded while you can't see outside? And the conclusion is is that porn shops and adult stores cannot possibly compete with the beauty of the skies. Pornography cannot come close to the grandeur of God's natural and good beauties. What was Jesus' first miracle according to the Gospel of John? He showed up at a wedding in Cana. They ran out of wine. They ran out of wine. Jesus comes, says some enigmatic, crazy thing that no one understood at that point. And he turns water into wine. Wine. Now, are you going to thirst to death if you don't have wine? Great answer. Can you not have a wedding party without wine? Is this a sheer essential necessity of life? No, it's not. But Jesus' the first miracle was to turn water into wine to keep that party going, to make it lavish and full. You see, if you think that the Garden of Eden and the kingdom of heaven to come in its fullness is about God just giving you, like, bare necessities. He's, like, on a very stingy budget. He just wants you to get by. You have a really wrong conception of God. God showed up in Jesus, first to show that Jesus' the Son is like God the Father and the wind hovering over the waters, the Holy Spirit, and all three in one were creating the whole universe. Like, Jesus can create water into wine. That signals he's not just human. But even better, Jesus showed up at the wedding with his first miracle to show I'm here to restore all of creation so that you don't just get by on bare necessities of life. I want you to enjoy the luxuries and the best and the finest that all of creation actually has to offer. We serve an absolutely happy God. We happen to worship creator God who from the beginning did not need you but invites you to share in his infinite ecstatic enjoyment over all things. So imagine this with me. Imagine this with me. Imagine if Christian people today were more known for their enjoyment of life than all the things that they were against. Can you picture that with me? Imagine if Christian people were more known, not just for what they oppose and condemn or against, according to the word of God, yes, but if Christian people were known to be, you know, I I get around these church people sometimes at meals or parties or Football and they're singing and they're hanging out, and it just seems like, (sighs) just seems like you guys like enjoy life better. Like when you eat food and drink certain wines, it's like you appreciate that more than I do. You're like more grateful for good things. It seems like you're very sensitive and astute, and you attribute to where this all came from. And Christian people are like colored with this sense of wonder and amazement at really how good things good could be. My friends, that's what God created you to do. For work and for enjoyment. It's a third lesson that you were created for. Chapter two, verse three. Chapter two, verse three, we read, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. On it, he rested from all he had done in creation. Third, God set apart a day for rest. God set apart a day for rest. Rest from what? Not rest from when you're on call. Not rest from providing for your family, not rest for works of necessity, emergencies, crises. Jesus worked on the Sabbath day to heal the sick. Not rest from any of the works of mercy or missions or ministry. But certainly God is establishing in himself the pattern. You must rest from overwork. Over stress, over worry. Over busyness. Do you know that if you try to be overhuman, you actually become subhuman. Rest, rest. For God Himself rested. What exactly is this Sabbath Sabbath rest? Pastors and commentators, the way that they put it, that I've latched onto is Sabbath rest is like R E M for your soul. You know that deep, deep stage of sleep. Counselors and professionals study sleep. It's not so much about the amount of sleep, but how deeply, how deeply you can sleep to feel rested. Well, this is rapid eye movement for your soul. Psalm 23, a favorite for so many people. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down. <laughs> My shepherd is so good. He knows me so well. He makes me lie down. Did you know if you don't lie down, God who loves you will have to make you lie down? Twice in my life, in recent memory, I've been laid up in a hospital for no obvious medical reason. Right around the new year of 2000, I went through a broken engagement would not have married Sonny. Probably would not have been at this church. Would not have Taylor Elizabeth. My whole life would have been different. Broken engagement. We were not good fits for each other. i had never been in a hospital for days. The doctors examined me. They could find nothing wrong. But I felt like I was going to die. God was making me lay down. Several years ago, he at the church, we lost some dear brothers. Dear brothers, I still miss them. Broke my heart. Session members, best of closest friends here, came and visited me again at a hospital. No obvious medical reason, but I was laid up in a hospital bed. God was making me lie down. Do you know that verse in 1 Peter? I shared it with the leaders at the leaders' conference last Saturday. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. You know, that's a great command. Because you should humble yourself first. You know, you should pray. I dare you to pray this prayer. I I started to pray it. God, please help me to humble myself first so that you don't have to come around and humble me. And here's what God is saying you don't wanna lie down, you don't ever wanna rest, you don't ever wanna humble yourself. If God loves you, before your body and brains and soul blow out, He'll come and make you lie down. Because the rest of Psalm 23 goes like this He makes me lie down, and what does He do? He restores my soul. That is clearly alluding to Sabbath rest. He restores my soul. Mark Buchanan, in a book entitled The Rest of God, which I've just been trying to shred through recently, pointed out that the Chinese joined two characters to form a single pictograph for busyness. Busyness. And here's the wisdom through Chinese culture and their language. Busyness, they put heart plus killing. Busyness equals heart plus Killing. Mark Buchanan, the author, his own father died from heart failure all too early because he was in corporate sales. His uncle died earlier than his father's because he was an editor of a small newspaper. Both worked themselves to death. You can include my own father in this too. And what struck me most is Mark Buchanan's question is, when do you know that you really need to rest? Do you even know? when do you know that you really need to rest? The way that Buchanan answers it, and I'll put it into my own words, is is when you don't care as much about the things you should care about. Who here in this room, do you know when you really need to rest? It's when you don't care about the things that you should really care about. So in Christian ministry, Pastoral leadership, so many times, truth be told, I have felt maybe I don't care as much about people. Maybe when someone is bawling and crying and grieving, I got no more tears to shed. The next project or endeavor at your work, which should be the opportunity of a lifetime like it could really really establish your career you're not excited you're not used for that you're like overwhelmed and dreading it. when you don't care about the things that you really should care about people relationships ministry the work of the gospel projects important things i'll never forget in my friendship with missionary joseph kim who tried the overwhelming impossible task of planting a Christian school in Japan? And his marriage was on the verge of collapse. He was suffering nightmares. Physically, he was wearing down. There is such a thing as spiritual attack when you're trying to bring the gospel to unreached places. He gave this one throwaway comment to me, and I knew and registered something's really wrong. He said, Harold, these days, I don't even want to watch the Chicago Bears play football. Joe is a big guy who grew up in Chicago. And when he told me he could not even have any interest to watch the Chicago Bears play, this is what busyness does. This is what a lack of rest does. It'll kill your heart. Now, I'm not talking just physically. I'm not just talking cardiologically. Did you know that there's a spiritual killer too? Did you know that there's a spiritual killing force that will crush your heart and all your soul? Let me put it this way. If you don't enjoy things like you should, if some of you in this room can never really just sit down and relax, you really can't ever fall asleep into REM. If you can't remember the last time you had enjoyment of life and every good thing that God has given to you, can I just suggest something to you? It's from the Holy Scriptures. You're suffering from a spiritual disease, and the disease goes like this. You see, if you're still working to prove yourself, if you're still working hard to become lovable and good enough and blessed enough before God... If you're still working to prove yourself before your creator, God, how can you ever rest? How can you ever enjoy anything? It's amazing to me. it's, it's, It's amazing to me. I get to worship, I get to I get to come on a stage and speak. It's amazing that you get to sing. It's amazing some of you get to present something. (laughs) It's amazing some of you get to play something, present something. Can I ask you a question? How do you ever do it for its pure enjoyment? How do you ever do any of that stuff for its pure enjoyment the way that God did with his own creation and over you? I remember a ballroom dance class I took with my wife. We were learning these steps. I'm uncoordinated, uncouth, and it was all foreign language to me. Took about three or four classes. I tried really hard. And one day the ballroom dance teacher noticed me and said, Good Harold, now can you try and smile? Good Harold, now can you try and smile? There was no way I could smile. I was so stressed about the next steps. There was no way I could enjoy it. I was still rehearsing and practicing. See, one of my points here is this, you really can't present anything in public or do anything for its own pure enjoyment if you haven't even practiced. Okay? Practice, 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 rehearsal, 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 You want to present the best thing, not for yourself, but actually to, please, yes, please, satisfy, do something for the people who would come and listen or watch you. Oh, let's put practice aside. Let's put a uh, say public showmanship aside. Let's forget about public appearances or a public, how polished or professional you could be. All right, well, put that aside. Here's what's really important. Even if you could put off the best show in your heart of hearts, do you enjoy what you do? And here's how you won't. Here's how you won't. If you're still not sure about how much God loves you, If you're not sure about what God thinks and feels about you, if you're not sure of your absolute, loved, unblemished, righteous state before your creator God, I'm afraid to tell you, you're always going to be up here ultimately because of you. Always, you're going to have to be up here to gain something, prove something, validate something, show something, show off something. And I've been there many, many times. That's not enjoyable. When it's about you, it's never enjoyable. It's actually really suffocating. It's miserable. But the only way that God would bring about his own enjoyment and have you enter into his own enjoyment is when he frees you from making it about you. And without Sabbath rest, all your work and your enjoyment suffers too. So here's how we get to experience and enter into Sabbath rest. Two steps. Two steps. How do we experience the Sabbath rest of God? Number one, set apart one day. Set apart one day, weekly rhythm, habits, routines more than radical inspired moves change you more. Not only weekly rhythms that one day is set apart, daily rhythms too, yes. What is the first thing that you reach for, look at, read, put your eyes to when you wake up in the morning? What is it? Politics, news, social media, your email. Try it. Try it for 365 days a week. It only takes a minute or two. Try putting your eyes and your focus upon the word of God or kneeling down in prayer. Rhythms, rhythms, routines, way more radical than inspirational moments. Well, Sabbath rest is both a gift from God and also his command. I don't know if you knew that. Commandment number four of the Ten Commandments is you shall keep the Sabbath and keep it holy. Parents in the room, you have little children. Why do you repeat certain things? Why do you write them? Why do you put it on the refrigerator? Why do you put it in their wall of their bedrooms? Why do you have to constantly tell them about maybe something like, don't cross the street without looking? Because it's that important. And it actually has to come out as a command. Think about it, think about it. God's gift of Sabbath is a command. And I just learned this week where it says, God blessed it and made it what? Made it what? Holy, holy, all right. You don't even have to know what that word means. I don't even care if you know what that word means, but you know it means a lot. Did you know that's the one and only time the word holy is used in the entire book of Genesis? I was shocked. Did you know that the Sabbath day, on the seventh day when God rested from all his works of creation, he blessed that day and made it holy is the... One and only time the word holy is used? So, you want to mess with that? Set apart one day. For God made it holy. Here's a second. How you and I get to experience Sabbath rest. You have to learn to rest in the gospel. The key, the healing for the spiritual killing of our hearts is you have to rest in the gospel. If you have your Bibles or devices, click on there, the book of Hebrews chapter four, verses two and three. Please turn there. It'll also be projected overhead. Hebrews chapter four, verses two and three. Let me read it for us. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them. Because they were united, not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Why did some people fail to enter that rest? Why did some people in history, just like you and me, fall short of experiencing Sabbath rest? They never learned to believe in and rest in the works of God to save them, ultimately through Jesus Christ. Yesterday, my youngest daughter, a teenager now, full-blown, uncovered these old videos. It's not digital. It's on little tapes, and I happily posted them. The cutest, most adorable pictures of when my girls were so young, right before they came here. Oh, I forgot how often they fought. So adorable and cute, but they fought like cats and dogs. The mayhem, the meltdowns. And I really missed it. I was all nostalgic yesterday. Probably made me feel a little sicker. But I know when you're in it in that stage, you want to get out of it. But let me tell you right now, I miss it so much. I know in that stage when my girls are about five or three, Almost every night I prayed, kind of like, God, forgive me because I feel like I love them more when they're sleeping. (laughs) But now I miss it. And I watched Taylor Elizabeth in these old videos just fight, fight, fight. Ah, that's mine. That's not yours. That's not fair, mommy, daddy. That's my toy. That's my toy. That's my food. How come you treated them different from me? Here's what I was reminded by. I should have these old videos. Sonny and I never taught Taylor Elizabeth to fight. Oh, we modeled it. We showed it. Oh, yes, but we never taught them to fight. We never told them, go ahead and fight. Taylor and Elizabeth figured it out all by themselves, and they became professionals. And do you know why they fight? From the day they're born and from the moment that they can talk, they fight over fairness. They fight over equity. They fight over what we call the golden rule. Do unto others as you want others to be done unto you. There's a standard. There's a law. Now, here's what Apostle Paul happens to say in Romans chapter 2. You don't have to be religious. You don't have to be Christian. You don't have to be church at all. Religious or not, everyone has a law. And in fact, the law of God has been written upon all human consciences because you were made in the image of God. And that law, which is written upon all human consciences, constantly assesses and scrutinizes and judges you, judges you of whether or not you are just, good, righteous or not. And a theologian by the name of Francis Schaefer came up with this experiment one day, said we attached a little tape recorder to your throat somehow, everything you ever said in life. And we recorded every, you ought to do this. You should do this. It is right to do this. Every time you told someone else what you think is right to do. And we played that back at the end of your life. And then we examined, did you do all the things that you told other people to do? This is one of Francis Schaeffer's way of telling all of us. You don't even fulfill your own laws. You don't even pass your own fairness test. But we all have a law down there. We all have some standards of fairness down there. We all have some sense of justice or righteousness. You don't have to go to church to get that. And here's what Apostle Paul says. You don't even pass your own test. What do you think you're going to do with the laws of God? Oh, you say, well, pastor, I mean, look at me, though. That's why I'm a good person. That's why I'm a religious person. That's why I'm a decent person. You know, that's why I bring my kids to your church so that they can learn about Jesus. When they get home, I'm not going to touch that. But that's why I'm a religious dedicated person. Can I tell you, my friend, you're never going to rest that way. You're exactly the type of person who'll never rest because you're still working for your own righteousness. And there's others of you in this room who say, oh, so beyond the religion thing. I don't go to religion because all it does, it makes me feel guilty and bad. Yeah, religion's without the gospel. I wouldn't want that either. But you say, I am free. I'm enlightened. I'm liberal. I'm enlightened. I'm all about social justice these days. I want to make a difference in the world. I'm going to protest. I'm going to active for equal rights. No more sexism. No more racism. That's my life. That's my life. That's great. That's good. It's a wonderful thing. Do you know you're not going to rest too? Because at the end of the day, if your conscience is clear, you never even match up to your own standards. And St. Augustine, who was a liberal of liberals, educated, sensual, free, and enlightened. Do you know what he said at the end of the day? Our hearts are all restless until they find their rest in thee. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. My friend, nobody really rests. Nobody really enjoys life until you learn to rest from all your works, works righteousness. You have to rest in the gospel. This is why Hebrews chapter 10 verse 12 Reads, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus Christ sat down. You know, throughout the entirety of the scriptures, I have other postures of positions I associate with Jesus kneeling, walking carrying a cross, standing, rarely sitting. Why is our great high priest sitting up in heaven at the right hand of God? He's sitting because there's no more work to be done to give you his righteousness. He's sitting because there's no more blood to be shed. He's sitting because his body has already been mutilated and crucified. He's sitting because you don't have to do a thing for you to be righteous and loved and perfectly accepted by God. John Wesley was the founder of the Methodist Church, was extremely diligent and dedicated. He gave up his fellowship at Oxford to travel to Georgia in America and become a chaplain to prisoners. He prayed six times a day, but he had no peace. He thought if he worked hard enough, did enough, God would surely come down one day and say to John, I will receive you, I am pleased with you. One night on a boat sailing back to England from America, he was hit by a tremendous storm. It looked and felt like for sure everybody on that ship was going to die. John Wesley noticed some people strangely at peace in the midst of that storm. They were called Moravians. They evidenced no fear of death. They had no fear of drowning. They were still gentle and kind to one another. They prayed. And then they worked hard. They worked very hard to keep the ship afloat and save everybody, but they were at peace. John Wesley looked upon these folks And he said to himself, I don't know God like that. I don't know God like that. And that's because John Wesley had never learned the gospel. He had never learned to trust God for the works God had done to save him instead of his own works to save himself. John Wesley had never really learned to rest from all of his own works righteousness and rest upon the finished and full work of Jesus Christ that had been accomplished for him. Let me close with this question. Can I ask a question? How many of you in this room can be a Christian? Listen to the question carefully. How many of you can be a Christian? I'm not asking right now, are you Christian? I'm asking, how many of you are qualified and can be Christian? In other words, I'm asking the question, how many of you in this room could be true and real and full and perfect Christian? How many? You prove the Bible. Not one is righteous. No, not one. Do you know only one person can? His name is Jesus Christ. Do you know that the only person who can be a Christian is actually Jesus Christ? Because here's what Jesus Christ came to do everything in your heart and your conscience that you know is right to do, other people should do, they ought to do, you wish they wouldn't do, Jesus did. And Jesus came and fulfilled all the laws of God. And Jesus is the only one who is perfectly righteous because he perfectly obeyed and fulfilled all the perfect righteousness of the laws of God. Do you know why he, do you, do you know why he did all that? Was well, so that he can give you the righteousness you can never work for. The moment that anyone in this room, I hope I'm talking to somebody in this room. I hope hope this microphone's on. I hope the Holy Spirit is working. I hope there is somebody in this room who's hearing what I'm saying right now. This very day, this moment, if you desperately need Jesus and you pray to him these words, Jesus, would you forgive and love and save me for Jesus' sake? Would you take me in, not based on what I did, but what Jesus did? Please, make me a Christian. Make me your child. The moment you pray that, the moment you mean that, the moment that this gospel becomes yours and you rest in it, your soul can begin to REM. You'll finally quiet down you'll finally begin to heal and you'll finally begin to rest from the deepest places of your soul the thing that makes you so restless. And for the rest of us in this room, if you, yes, have already believed in this, yes, you already rest in this, keep the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Regularly. Every week. For God himself rested on the seventh day from all his works of creation. Please stop trying to do better. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word. And we thank you that you love and care for us better than we can care for ourselves. Oh Lord, I pray that the gospel of Jesus would come and invade and heal broken, tired, weary, restless hearts. Jesus, for anyone who calls on your name, for anyone who confesses with their mouth that you are Lord and believe in their heart that Christ indeed has been raised from the dead, he or she shall be saved. Lord, and I pray that we as a family, as church, we would keep your Sabbath day holy, worship you, rest in you, and be able to enjoy things like you as a witness for a dying world. To you be all the glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.